Interiors is the seventh film written and directed by Woody Allen, first released in 1978. Diane Keaton, Mary Beth Hurt and Kristen Griffith play three sisters who barely get along. Their parents, Father Arthur, played by E.G. Marshall, and Mother Eve, played by Geraldine Page, have recently separated, leaving their daughters to deal with their family, their partners, their ambitions and their lives. Interiors is Woody Allen's first serious work, a quiet drama about a family. It's not only his first dramatic film, it's pretty much his first dramatic anything. Years of stand-up, playwriting, acting and writing comic short stories was put aside for 100 minutes. Not in a bad way, but there is nothing funny about interiors. Welcome to the Woody Allen Pages podcast. This week we look at 1978's interiors, how it was conceived, how it was made, and how it's so unlike any of Allen's other work. Spoilers are everywhere, so watch the film and then come back. Look, why can't you just once in a while... Consider my feelings and my needs. I'm sick of your needs. I'm tired of your idiosyncrasy and your competitiveness. I have my own problems. Arthur Krim was the chairman of United Artists since 1951 and had been working with Alan since 1971 with his second film, Bananas. He knew Alan as a stand-up who was also a great comic writer. He took a chance on him being a director of comedy films. By 1977, after the release of Annie Hall that followed a string of rather successful comedies, Arthur Krim was being proven right. Annie Hall was a big step up compared to his earlier films, but Annie Hall still started like one of Alan's comedies, where there were a million scenes and a million ideas. So as much as Annie Hall felt different, it wasn't a massive swerve. But Alan's follow-up to Annie Hall was going to be a massive swerve. He wanted to make something deliberately different. Alan has always wanted to make drama. He's always loved dramatic filmmakers and storytellers. For him, comedy was only one of the things he wanted to do. Making something dramatic had always been on Alan's to-do list. The list of Alan's favourite directors features no comedians. His biggest directorial love, Igmar Bergman, made plenty of serious drama. Alan also idolised American playwrights such as Tennessee Williams and Eugene O'Neill. And you just have to look at Billy Wilder a successful filmmaker that Alan adores, to see a successful career that mixes comedy and drama. Wilder would make serious films such as Double Indemnity and Ace in the Hole, as well as comedies like Some Like It Hot and The Apartment. The same with a director like Federico Fellini, also one of Alan's favourites. It's not just a different style though. Rightly or wrongly, Alan holds drama in higher esteem than comedy. Alan even went so far as to say that comedy, and being a comic director, was like sitting at the kids' table. Alan wanted to be a serious adult filmmaker and sit at the adult table. And to do that, in his mind, he had to make drama. Krim said of the film that would be interiors that it was the film that Woody Allen had to make. I think because behind the scenes, Alan was wanting to make a more serious film for many years. And if Alan didn't get making a drama out of his system, he wouldn't be able to move forward. Whatever happened to your photography? You have so much potential. You used to be so hot on that. I hate it. It's stupid. I feel a real need to express something, but I don't know what it is I want to express or how to express it. Alan's deal with Arthur and United Artists meant that he had full creative control. But creative control is different from blessing and support. After Annie Hall, United Artists gave Alan the blessing and support to make the drama. Let's see what this guy can make, they thought. Let's let him get it out of his system. 
It wasn't like Alan wasn't already writing more dramatic work on the side. There was a number of films that Alan wanted to make in the 70s, but ultimately relented to make comedies instead. One was later made into the downbeat, Sweden Lowdown. Alan in the 70s was also working hard on a novel, which was finished and sent to friends. It never came out and its contents are a mystery, but apparently some of it was turned into 2003's Anything Else, and it wasn't a comedy. I think Alan would mostly succeed in turning his reputation around. It would take decades in films like Matchpoint and Blue Jasmine, and people would look back at films like Vicky Cristina Barcelona and The Purple Rose of Cairo and realise that the jokes were not what made those films great. But this was still 1978, and this was Alan's first dramatic step. And as much as he was working on more dramatic stuff in private, no one had seen it yet in public. They had seen six comedy films, three comedy albums, several funny New Yorker pieces and many funny TV appearances. And now for something completely different. The film that would become Interiors feels like it could have been a novel in itself. It has that scope with many roles and deep characters. Like so much of Alan's work at the time, the inspiration comes from real life. The conception for Interiors starts pretty much where the film starts. Alan heard about a family where the father declared that he was leaving in a simple, direct and proper manner over a family meal. And the mother simply got up, went to her room and committed suicide. Look, I want to say something. I'm going to be very direct. I think the occasion calls for it. I've done a lot of thinking about this matter and a great deal of soul-searching. Now that the girls are all on their own, I feel that for my own self, I must come to this decision, though I don't take it lightly. I feel I've been a dedicated husband and a responsible father, and I haven't regretted anything I've been called upon to do. Now, I feel I want to be by myself for a while. Consequently, I've decided to move out of the house. Now, I don't know how I'll feel about it when I finally do it, and it's not irrevocable, but I feel it's something I have to try. That was only part of the story. There was a pair of families that directly inspired the characters. Alan either met or knew a pair of families that had parents who held very different values to their three talented daughters. Alan has never confirmed who those families were, except that one was Jewish and from New York, and the other was Californian. Several people have claimed that they were the inspiration. But look, Diane Keaton is from California and has two sisters. Just saying. This was how Alan worked at the time. He took snippets of real life and the people he knew as a template for stories. This is far more common for writers in the world of fiction than writer-directors of popular film. Alan, being a writer first and a director second, took the same approach. He would take this even further in films like Hannah and Her Sisters and Husbands and Wives and anything else. But those elements are just building blocks. They are the frame for interiors. It's not the story that Alan wanted to tell. What Alan wanted to talk about was this family relationship. And the mother of the family, Eve, is the character that drew Alan in the most. She's very much at the heart of the story and hangs over every scene, even when she's not there. Alan had a very demanding and cold mother. His second wife, Louise Lasser, also had a demanding mother who ultimately committed suicide. Again, Alan probably took bits from real life, but the generation gap between Alan's age group and their parents was huge. 
The role of the mother was changing very fast in the 70s. It's even expressed in the way that Eve in the story has been the more successful parent and paid for her husband's education. That was still a fairly new concept in the 70s. Before a breakdown, she was a very successful woman. She was very demanding. She, uh, she put dad through law school and she financed the start of his practice. So in a sense, it was like he was her creation. Eve is this dominating figure, but she isn't typical. She is an extreme person with an overtly rigid and strict set of views. It is reflected in her job as an interior decorator, where she can control everything. Alan said that Eve reflected some of his own worst instincts. Alan and Eve share this rigidity when it comes to how life should be, and they expect others to bend for their quirks. Eve doesn't know it, but the life she created for her family is a cold one. Arthur describes it as an ice palace. In a way, Eve's family was just more furniture for her to play around with and get perfect. They had, as Father Arthur puts it, a perfectly ordinary life. At the time the girls were born, it was all so perfect, so ordered. Looking back, of course, it was rigid. The truth is, she created a world around us that we existed in where everything had its place, where there was always a kind of harmony. Oh, great dignity. I will say, it was like an ice palace. But the breakup of the family throws everything Eve knows out the window. We only get a couple of impressionistic flashbacks of family life in the past. The film starts with everyone pretty much in crisis. Eve, now living alone, is highly critical and overly sensitive. She's passive-aggressive and needy. In short, she's kind of horrible. But she's also suffering from depression and manic episodes, and her children have to carry that. Look, it might sound cruel, but I don't think Alan wants to make Eve a sympathetic character. She constantly needles at her children. She doesn't offer her children any actual love. They are scared of her and how she might react to things. We are not, I don't think, supposed to like her. I've seen some nice computers and done that. And I can make the shade and smoother fabric if you prefer. But we should stick with my beiges and my earth tones. Beiges and my earth tones. Stop picking on her. Nobody's picking on her. She's a sick woman. But this actually isn't Eve's film. We don't really get to know Eve and we don't get to understand her motivations or why she came to be the person she is. Even in her final scenes at the beach house with Joey, she doesn't speak and she doesn't defend herself. By then, she's a spectre, a plot device. She is something that happened to her children. I think you're really too perfect to live in this world. I mean, all the beautifully furnished rooms, carefully designed interiors, everything so controlled. There wasn't any room for any real feelings. None. Uh, between any of us. With their father gone, looking after Eve falls on the responsibility of her daughters. The youngest, Flynn, lives in LA as an actor, meaning the two daughters that live in New York, Joey and Renata, help out the most. It also means that these two are really our main characters. The first part of the film is all about how Joey, Renata and Eve interact. 
Alan's initial plan for interiors was to focus on Joey. There's no clear Woody Allen role in this film, but Joey sort of comes closest. She's the first person that we see in the film. Like so many people here, Joey is frustrated and unhappy. The wider family drama is just one issue. She doesn't know what to do with her life. She goes from creative endeavour to creative endeavour. She has something to say, but doesn't know how to say it. Joey's search engulfs her life. She can't hold down a job. She doesn't want to have kids. It pushes away her partner, Mike, and now she has to deal with a mother who is falling apart. Well, what happens to those of us who can't create? What do we do? What do I do when I'm overwhelmed with feelings about life? How do I get them out? Joey is the daughter that is most like Eve. Renata says so at one point. She can also be cold and distant. She's pragmatic and doesn't want anyone getting Eve's hopes up. You can imagine her relationship with Mike is not far from Eve's relationship with Arthur. You're late. I'm sorry. It's 45 minutes. Traffic was unbearable. I'm sorry. You should take that into account. Your mother's been Can waiting for over an hour. Can we drop this, please? My head is splitting. What's the matter? Well, what do you think? I'm pregnant. I thought you might be. I'm damned annoyed. All right, we'll take care of it. Naturally, we'll take care of it. You don't think I'm going to have a kid? Joey, I said we'll take care of it. It's nothing. So stupid. Can I be so careless? All right, it happens. You know, we could have a kid. It wouldn't be the end of the world. For you, maybe. For me, it'd be the end of the world. I'm sorry you feel that way. Oh, Michael, I've thought about it. It's absurd. I mean, how could we have a kid? I don't even know where my life is going. Maybe it's not such a great idea. You don't think so either? I guess not. Then there's Renata. She too has artistic frustrations, and for Alan that means existential frustration. Unlike Joey, Renata is an accomplished artist, a poet. But for her, it's asking what's the point of the art that she makes. Alan said of Renata that she is his mouthpiece in the film, and she says things about life and art that are similar to Alan's views, like wanting to make a great work, and how your art means nothing after you die, like various things that Alan would say again in films like Stardust Memories. I suddenly found I couldn't bring myself to write anymore. Rather, I mean, I shouldn't say suddenly. Actually, it started happening last winter. Increasing thoughts about death just seemed to come over me. Um, these, uh... A preoccupation with my own mortality. These feelings of futility in relation to my work. I mean, just what am I striving to create anyway? I mean, to what end, for what purpose, what goal? I mean, do I really care if a handful of my poems are read after I'm gone forever? Is that supposed to be some sort of compensation? When it comes to her parents, Renata has always been competitive with Joey. She's jealous of how her dad seeks more validation from Joey, probably because she withholds it more, like Eve. She tries to reassure her mother that there is hope, but it might be causing her more harm. She also has problems with her drunken writer husband Frederick, and she's conflicted about her own motherhood. She is in therapy and very unhappy. I think you should do as you feel with our blessing. Joey, I count on you. I'm sorry. 
I can't help it. Will you tell him it's okay? Obviously, it's your approval he needs. He certainly had no trouble getting yours. Clearly, it doesn't mean as much as yours. I want the support of all my daughters. I'm not just here to make sacrifices and foot the bills. It's time you thought of me. The story really changes again with the arrival of Pearl. That's when the film really picks up. Alan later said that the film would have worked better if Pearl entered earlier, and I agree. It gives form to the conflicts of the characters. As Arthur's new partner, Pearl is immediately set up as the opposition to Eve, and she couldn't be more different. Joey calls her a vulgarian, but she's happy and unburdened by the bigger issues of life. She doesn't get too torn up over a play that the family has seen. For her, life is simple. To me, uh, the conflict over the giving of the information between the French doctor and the Algerian was the best part of the play. I know. And, uh, the writer argued both sides so brilliantly, he didn't know who was right. I didn't get that. I mean, it, to me, it wasn't such a big deal. One guy was a squealer, the other guy wasn't. I liked the guy that wasn't. <laughs> well, it's a little more complex than that, don't you think? Why? You liked the squealer? Did I miss something? That's what made me anxious about the play. I mean, how do you figure out the right thing to do? How do you know? How do you know? I don't know. You just know and you feel it. I mean, you just don't squeal. I don't know. Arthur and Pearl marry and it brings the family together to the beach house. Flynn returns and both she and Renata are ultimately accepting that this is the way it will be. Joey is the only holdout. It makes sense that she's the one who reacts worst to the arrival of Pearl. Renata doesn't even tell Joey that her father is bringing someone to dinner because she knows how she will react. Later, she yells at Pearl when she breaks a vase. Jesus Christ, be careful! I'm drink. not drunk just because I don't act like an animal. That's enough. But Joey's journey is not to be her mother. The climax of the film is all on Joey and how she reacts at the wedding. She has the final one-sided exchange with her mother, where she lays out that she is aware of her own faults and what she has taken from her mother. But she forgives her and says that she loves her. But I love you. And we have no other choice but to forgive each other. The film rushes to a conclusion shortly after. Eve, who's always been disturbed as we've met her, commits suicide by walking into the sea. Joey runs after her and gets caught in the waves. Mike and Pearl run after her. Mike pulls her out of the water and Pearl gives her mouth to mouth and she lives. We see one final sequence as the family attends Eve's funeral and then gather at the beach house and the film ends. Now, the problem with interiors is that Alan cut it to pieces. At this point in his career, he didn't have traditional scripts and he often found his films in the edit. This is also true of interiors where he edited out large sections of the story. What is left, at best, is an impressionistic portrait. At worst, it feels like a book with chapters missing. What Alan left in says a lot about what he wanted to say. Mostly it's Joey, Renata and Eve. Third sister Flynn gets totally shafted and we know scenes with Arthur and Joey's husband Mike had scenes cut. Flynn feels like she was set up to be a contrast to the seriousness of her other sisters. She has far less life on her shoulders, although she seems a little frustrated in not being a serious actor. 
The only times that Flynn appears without either of her sisters or her mother are the two scenes with Renata's husband, Frederick, and sometimes it feels like those scenes are more about Frederick than Flynn. Whatever role she was supposed to play, we don't know. The story really could have been about two sisters, and it would have been fine. Flynn! Oh, you look terrific. <laughs> you really do. Oh, and that's a great sweater. Oh, no. No, it really is. It's nice. I've seen this sweater sweater. before. No, I haven't. It's terrific. Uh Are you tanned, really? Have you been somewhere? Why? Why? Do I have on too much makeup? (laughs) You're the one that looks great, Fliss. Oh, no, I don't. You do? No, I've gained weight. Right. Oh, my plane flight was so bumpy, I thought I was going to die. I made such a fool of myself, the man next to me. (laughs) (laughs) did. Strange edits and plot holes are everywhere. A lot is set up and never resolved. Structurally, the strangeness happens right at the start of the film. The opening shots of the film are clearly set later in the story. We see Joey and Renata surveying the empty beach house, probably when they first arrive before the wedding of Arthur and Eve. Then we see a scene of Arthur from the back looking out at the city. It's a shot from a scene that's otherwise cut of Arthur at his office. And it's an office that we never actually get to see again in the film. The voiceover... Arthur speaking about the Ice Palace is a completely different scene again that was later cut. That scene had Arthur telling Pearl about his concern for his daughters. But it's really the only scene where we get to see Arthur's point of view. Otherwise, his role got cut. All these opening scenes are very impressionistic, and Alan moved them around because they helped set up the story. We get to meet Renata and Joey. Arthur explains the family's past. It sets up the imagery that we will see later. So Alan just about gets away with it because it's arty and it works for feels. Look, I could nitpick a lot like how Frederick's drunken storyline is never resolved. We never get to know Arthur and his reasons for blowing up the family. Heck, even Renata, one of our main characters, barely gets a resolution. The energy is all over the place too. Frederick forcing himself on Flynn feels like a completely different film and who knows how it was supposed to fit in with everything else. The scene where Arthur tells Eve he's remarrying and she runs out of the church is a huge change of pace. It's weird, but it's dramatic, I guess. It doesn't quite work for me. Oh, I just want to die. Stop that. But it's the only version of the film that we have. Some of the cast, crew and Alan have referred to scenes that were cut or storylines that were lost. But without them to look at, we can only look at what we have. So we have to take it as a mood piece with a strong sense of style, some interesting characters, and a couple of things that happen to them. It's not the strongest or tightest story Alan would write. What does work about the script is the details. Alan's dialogue is fantastic. Just listen to how simple the scene where Eve buys a vase for Joey's apartment. Alan spells out everyone's character in the dialogue and paints an uncomfortable scene that makes your skin crawl. And the characters are excellent. There's no cartoonish stereotypes here. Everyone is feeling seven things at once. Joey is frustrated and worried about her mother and dealing with Mike and hating on Pearl, all at the same time. The deep complexities and contradictions in people are so well drawn. And at times, the drama is high. Everything with Pearl is great. The ending in the water when Mike runs out to save the woman he loves so diligently is great. There's a lot of good stuff here. In the end, for me, what's most interesting about the writing of this film is how much Alan kept rewriting it in later films. 
Alan said that he was unhappy with how interiors turned out and wish he could have done it again. And he kind of does, with Stardust Memories, Hannah and Sisters, Another Woman, Vicky Christina Barcelona, and many more. Let's talk about the style for a moment. Alan, especially around this time, was always shooting for a particular style. Whether it was his early comedies where Woody Allen does sci-fi or Woody Allen does revolutions, even in the films that come directly after this, they are Woody Allen does Italian neorealism or Woody Allen does German Impressionism. So too is interiors. Allen's style this time is just as specific. The style is somewhere in the world of Igmar Bergman's brooding dramas. In films such as Persona and Cries and Whispers, Swedish director Igmar Bergman created these very still, quiet family dramas, and Alan is definitely doing Bergman. It's a huge change of pace for Alan, and Alan, up till now, was a very frenetic and pacey filmmaker. This deliberate change of pace was alarming, but Alan was trying to shake off the shackles of being a comedic director, so he was trying hard to not seem like the style that people expected. I look in the mirror every day and I feel discouraged and look, now I see you and you don't change at all. Look you. No, you don't change. Your skin is like cream. Look at your skin. I'm so angry. I work at it. But what was the same old Alan was his process of finding films in the edit. And when Alan and his team reviewed the footage, the film wasn't working. Alan and his team, including editor Ralph Rosenblum, had to be brutal. Like in Annie Hall, where they focused on Alvy's relationship with Annie, Alan and Rosenblum focused on Joey, Renata and Eve. Like with the writing, the best thing about the directing is the details. The slower pace really works well with Eve's first suicide attempt. The way the camera focuses on the ceiling of the windows and allows us to guess what's going on. Then the detail of the roll of tape running out. And we hope that this might mean that this sick act might stop. But instead, a new roll of tape appears. Then there's the scenes of Renata at the therapist. She talks directly to camera in a one-sided conversation. It's a neat trick to use therapy as a way to do a monologue, and Alan would do it again many more times. I, I saw her the first day that they brought her back. Um, she had had all this electric shock therapy, and her hair looked gray. I couldn't believe it. It was... It was like she was a stranger. In fact, if you haven't already noticed, the main characters are just about the only people in the film. There's no crowd shots. We don't see Renata's therapist or shopkeepers when characters are in shops. We never see the doctors in the hospital scenes. Everything is so self-contained. And I like the very impressionistic shots of the family in the past. Always far away and in silhouette. And it could be young Eve in better days or the girls playing on the beach. And how at the wedding, we don't actually see the wedding. We stay focused on the sisters and their reaction. I also love that Alan and cinematographer Gordon Willis's use of colour. Everything is brown and grey for a reason. It fits in with the characters. But then Pearl walks in with her red dress. Even what she wears messes with the family dynamic. There are just so many good, inventive and clever ideas in this film. How did you I do that? Oh, what's the difference? <laughs> that is a miraculous card trick. Alan made interiors in modern-day New York, but as the name suggests, a lot of the film was made in apartments. The notable exception being the family beach house that features at the end of the film. That was one of 50 places that Alan and the production designer Mel Bourne looked at in Long Island. 
Bourne was also tasked to make or find all the interior decorations that had to speak to Eve's sensibilities. God. God, isn't it strange being back in the house again? Mm, yeah. This film was supposed to break people's expectations of Alan, but the only real familiar element for audiences was Diane Keaton. But around this time, she was also worried about being typecast because people believed she was actually the character of Annie Hall. Alan had wanted Keaton to play Joey, but she wanted to play something different and asked to play Renata instead. She gets to show off her dramatic chops here, and it is intense. It's a strong performance, but it also must have been really strange for the audience. Oh yes, you're fine as long as I keep everything going. What do you mean, keep everything going? You're talking about that check that arrives from Daddy every month so that you can write yourself into immortality? I also raised the family that you wanted, or the family that you thought you wanted. Hey, you made some noises about experiencing motherhood. I'm sure you thought it was great potential raw material. Well, now you got another human being, three of us. It wasn't my idea, and I'm not ashamed to be subsidized either. I turn things out. This is Mary Beth Hurt's first ever film role. She carries much of the film, and it must have been challenging for her with her first time on screen, giving the film some much needed heart and someone to root for. She came from the world of stage acting, and for her work here, she was nominated for a BAFTA. Joey, maybe it wouldn't be such a bad idea to have a child. Oh, please. I mean, sometimes just taking an action. I can't, okay? You mean you won't? Why do you stay with me? I, I don't understand you. I give you nothing but grief. Geraldine Page is an acting legend. She was first nominated for an Academy Award in the 50s, but she was blacklisted by dickheads during the McCarthyism era. She enjoyed working with Alan, who gave her freedom to find a character. But Interiors is just a footnote in her career, even if she was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Actress for her work and she would win that Academy Award for Best Actress in 1985, seven years after Interiors, for her role in The Trip to Bountiful. Interestingly, Alan had Igmar Bergman in mind for the role of Eve, but she couldn't do it because she was working with Igmar Bergman, of all people. I like Frederick. He has dignity and promise. It's all right. My own strength is a visual. Your image is so visual, Renata. And in all candor, I much prefer Frederick to Mike. Mike's fine, Mother. Well, he uses a very strong aftershave. It permeates the house. I don't want to talk about it. Do you think that if I bought him another kind of cologne that he would switch? We talk about something else. Well, let me give him some. Then we won't have to talk about it. It'll just be my gift. Could we please talk about something else? Maureen Stapleton was also nominated for an Academy Award for her role as Pearl. Stapleton also had a long career on stage and appeared in films such as The Fugitive Kind and would later win a Best Supporting Actress Oscar for Reds in 1981, which also starred Diane Keaton. Do you have any children, Pearl? Oh, yes, I have two sons. Lewis and John. Lewis is in real estate. John runs an art gallery. Oh? In the lobby in Caesar's Palace in Las Vegas. It's not, not exactly a gallery, it's more a concession. Paintings of clowns on black velvet? That's right, junk. Oh, I tell you, it's pure junk. <laughs> but people like it, they get a kick out of it. He does very nicely. It was the nature of interiors that we don't get to see much of the others. E.G. Marshall doesn't get to do much. Richard Jordan's Frederick seems to go from utterly drunk to kind of normal. Of the secondary cast, for me, the MVP is Sam Waterston. 
He plays the most decent character in the film. But you know, I just like Sam Waterston. The other part of the casting to point out was the anti-casting. Woody Allen himself is not in it. Allen thought that he as an actor was so tied to comedy that even his presence would mean that the audience would be getting ready to laugh. And he was probably right. He still, after many decades, don't really cast himself in his own dramas. The film was such a hard swerve from Annie Hall, but much of Alan's crew remains from that film. Robert Greenhut was the producer, Mel Bourne, as I mentioned, was the production designer, and cinematographer Gordon Willis does his usual fine job here. It's his second time working with Alan, and he plays his part in making the great bits of this film memorable. Whatever the faults of the film, the key scenes are to be remembered. The staging of people and the lighting is classic Willis. I happen to think you're a very impressive person. Oh, I think you have a very impressive feat. <laughs> this would be editor Ralph Rosenblum's last film with Alan. He was instrumental since Alan's first film in 1969 in making his ideas work. He didn't have a great time on interiors though and would mainly do supervision roles before retiring soon after. In 1979, Rosenblum wrote a great memoir called When the Shooting Stops, The Cutting Begins. It is a pretty essential Woody Allen book and tells the behind the scenes stories of Allen's early films. Rosenblum passed away in 1995. Another reason Interiors is so strange in the breadth of Woody Allen's filmography is the lack of music, and it's another element that he swiped from Igmar Bergman. Bergman's filmmaking style was stark and light on music. Allen, a lifelong deep lover of music, went against his own instincts here. Annie Hall, that film that came before this, is actually very light on music as well, except the character of Annie is a singer and we hear music in the film. Alan would make a complete U-turn with this film to follow. Manhattan was written and made with the music and soundtrack in mind, and he would never look back after that. So it leaves us with Interiors, the only Woody Allen film with no music. There's no music in the opening or closing credits. There is some music at the wedding after Arthur and Pearl are married. Music and the simple joy of music is just not in this family's life. And it is another thing that Pearl brings to the family. Interiors was released on the 2nd of August 1978 in the US. It didn't open widely, playing just a few cinemas in certain cities like New York. And in those cities, Annie Hall and Woody Allen were so popular that the film did quite well. It rolled out across the country with some acclaim. Look, critics loved it. The film was nominated for five Academy Awards, including Best Director and Best Original Screenplay for Allen. Rosenblum would later say that Allen managed to pull it off and the audiences found something to like in these troubled characters. But I think the real reason this film did okay is because it was the follow-up to Annie Hall, and people were just into this Woody Allen guy. The marketing was smart in not setting up expectations of what this was and wasn't. The film made 10 million, less than a quarter of Annie Hall, but it wasn't a flop. Do you help me get my boots off? The best offer I had all you. This film exists because Alan wanted to tell a story and make a film. But it also exists because Alan didn't want to be typecast. So yes, I've said it before, but he swerved hard here to make a point. It's a film that Alan's studio said that he had to make and get out of his system. And for whatever reason, Alan's method is to learn in public. So what we have is this film that is clearly Alan learning how to make a different type of film. It lacks Alan's flair. It doesn't have music. His very distinctive voice is missing, and it has been cut to pieces. 
Alan would do a lot better than this, and I feel the years aren't kind to this film. Alan doesn't do deleted scenes and director's cuts and all that messing with what's done, but he has expressed occasionally a view to revisit this one. It's one of the few that he's ever expressed a desire to redo, even jokingly. We'll never know, I guess, what Alan was actually going for. If you dive in, the characters are compelling, the relationships are sharply written, and there's lots of great directing ideas. What we have is a film that has lots of incredible moments, but I find, ultimately, frustrating. How's she holding up? I don't know. Better than we all expected. Isn't that right, Joey? She took it very badly at first. But after the initial shock, she seemed to come out of it. Joey feels that all of her Jesus Christ nonsense is actually somewhat of a help. Well, whatever works. Here's some fun facts from Interiors. Firstly, we never learn the last name of the family. Second, indie rock band Death Cab for Cutie used Interiors as the inspiration for their song, Death of an Interior Decorator. It was released on their 2003 album, Transatlanticism. In the lyrics, singer Ben Gibbard describes a woman with three daughters who arrives at a beach house after a wedding and then walks into the sea. You working titles for the film was Windows. There's definitely windows used throughout the film. Alan didn't use the title, but it must have stuck with his cinematographer, Gordon Willis, because in 1980, just two years later, Willis stepped into the role of director for the first and only time with an unrelated film called Windows. And that film flopped. And finally, this is the last collaboration between Alan and costume designer, Joel Schumacher. The two would remain close friends and hold parties together, but Schumacher had expressed a desire to direct and Alan encouraged him to do so. He would go on to direct great films like St. Elmo's Fire, The Lost Boys, Flatliners, and much more. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Woody Allen Pages podcast. What do you think of interiors? I sometimes think I'm off from the rest of the fans on this one, but maybe I'm being too harsh because I've read so much about it. So I'd love to hear your thoughts. Email me at woodyallenpages at gmail.com and let me know. I've gotten some great questions and comments in the email already this season. Best comments and questions will be in the Q&A episode at the end of the season. As usual, there's ways to support the podcast. This week, let's talk about the Patreon. I know times are tough and paying for things online, everyone's asking. It's all good, but obviously this podcast isn't free to make. It's a lot of time, and there's several hard costs to keep up the software subscriptions and the hosting and all that. I also group it in with the cost of the website, and I think the podcast and the website work well together. I mean, if you're here and you like the podcast, there's so much stuff on that website. It's been going for over 10 years. It's a really deep archive, and I'm really proud of it. There have been other Woody Allen websites over the years, but people give up on those pages and they fall off the internet and are lost forever. I don't want it to happen to this website. In light of everything that's happened to Woody in the last couple of years, I want to aggressively keep this shrine to his work up there for everyone to find. The lowest Patreon tier is the cost of a couple of Blu-rays every year. 
and I see that people hop in and out as the season is actually on or off. It's all good, every little bit helps, but only help if you can. Links to the Patreon is in the description. There's other ways to help, of course, as well. There's Buy Me A Coffee, which is a tipping service, and I've had some very generous coffee buyers this season. And you can buy the books or the poster on Amazon and Redbubble. Links are in the description. Of course, leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Tell a friend and follow me on social media at Woody Allen Pages. Check out the website as well, WoodyAllenPages.com. And if you've not seen it, the trailer for Coup de Chance with English subtitles is up on the website. Next week, we look at the film that Alan took the longest time to make. Thanks for listening. I'd love another piece of cheesecake, but... Well, have it. Oh, what are you worried about? You'll live to be a hundred if you give up all the things that make you want to. Oh. <laughs>